Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hello, listeners. This is the first really typical episode of the Storied Recipe podcast in about two months because we did the summer retrospective series. I took a couple weeks off for vacation, and then I released an episode, a replay of an episode with myself last week. So I'm really excited to dive right back in today with Afia Amwako, known on TikTok, Instagram, the web, elsewhere, everywhere as the Canadian African. As her name suggests, Afia has quite an expansive perspective on food and culture. She was raised in Ghana, spent formative years in Tanzania, South Africa, Connecticut, and now lives in Toronto, where she is pursuing a PhD in epidemiology and food blogging as well. Afia shares with us a lentil quinoa palau recipe to pay homage to that time in Tanzania, where the food reflected the many races and histories of this African country that was shaped by the Silk Road. The recipe also reflects Afia's vegan lifestyle, which is her way of being grateful for what she has, doing everything she can for the earth, and also honoring the way her Ghanaian ancestors ate for many generations. This is a really fast-paced conversation that was full for me of fascinating lessons in history, languages, culture, food, and really most importantly, Afia's unique story. Welcome to Afia and welcome to you, my listeners. I know you're really busy because you are a PhD student. Yeah, no, well, I'm on, like, I have some downtime now because mm-hmm. I just finished my first year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I have some downtime um, okay. until August. So, yeah. Well, we were going to talk about this at the end, but do you mind if I ask you about it now? What is your research in? Yeah, um, that is yet to be determined. Um, The most important thing is that I got a supervisor. And so yeah, as of now, it's it's going to be infectious disease transmission modeling, but Mm -hmm. the infectious disease that I will be modeling is yet to be determined. I see. I see. So this doesn't have anything to do with food or food blogging at all. (laughs) No, 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 no. No, but did the interest come from something earlier in your life? Any experiences? Infectious diseases were always something that interested me just because it was just something that was around me so often. Mm. Like growing up, like there was mass vaccination campaigns for polio Mm. and like every Ghanaian has had their fair share of malaria. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so it's just, it was always something that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of was something that, it just followed me through my, my schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Malaria is like the seasonal flu. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I cannot count the number of times I had had malaria, typhoid fever, like all of mm-hmm. those things are kind of within it's yeah, it's not something that has been that's unheard of. But yeah, malaria is definitely like the thought of it is kind of like the seasonal flu. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there remedies? Like did your family, whoever cared for you, did they always turn to medicine or like were there remedies that maybe food-based remedies or something that people knew worked better? Like how were you treated or did you just wait it out? (laughs) You sweated it out and and how Um, did that go? uh, Well, in terms of like traditional medicine, Mm -hmm. I don't remember any time that I was given some kind of traditional medicine for malaria. There was times that I was given traditional medicine for more intestinal ailments. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, we just went to the hospital. They give you anti-malarial medication. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I know that many people in the West think of malaria as a dangerous disease because it is. Living in West Africa, we are consistently exposed to it. Yeah. So our immune system is more trained for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the biggest concern is accessing these anti-malarial medication mm-hmm. and accessing ones that are actually like medication, not fake medicines that are really okay. flooding the pharmaceutical industry ah. in, in West Africa. Yeah, about one in three malaria, anti-malaria medication is said to be fake. 
Um, wow. Who's yeah. distributing these? They're usually brought from China or India and they end up being like sugar pills. Um, mm-hmm. But there's less, there's not a lot of regulation in terms of medication as there is here in Canada. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are bringing in all these fake medication just so that they can earn money. And mm-hmm. they are relatively cheaper because, of course, it's a sugar pill. So the people who are poor, that's what they can afford. And then it becomes yeah. a big concern. Wow. But yeah, so it's those are those are the things that mm-hmm. we kind of had to con- I we had to contend with growing mm-hmm. up and was part of our normal mm-hmm. lives. Right now, like I'm now that I'm not in Ghana, like going back, the getting malaria is a bigger concern just because I've not been exposed to it in so long. Mm-hmm. But yeah, infectious diseases has kind of always been there. And mm-hmm. so it's something that I've always been interested in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's it's easy to see why. And I've heard that about malaria. I think that there are some major battles in the Civil War here in the U.S. no. I take that back in the Revolutionary War yeah, here in no, the U.S. These, yeah, 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 yeah. These the, It makes very much sense, especially in the southern part of the mm-hmm. United States. A lot of it was hard for like when the Spanish came at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, it was hard to build settlements there. And that's why you have areas like in the um, lowlands, South Carolina, North Carolina, the mm-hmm. islands that were off the actual main the United States yeah. where you only really have pockets of African Americans because you know the white people were worried about malaria <laughs> and all of these um potential infectious diseases so yeah yeah it, it, these are it's definitely a concern and it's a concern that is coming back again with climate change mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so which is yeah. something you write about and talk about the threat of climate change particularly to West African countries. Yeah, yeah. It's rather complicated just because one, because the African continent itself, because of mm-hmm. where it's situated and how massive it is, mm-hmm. there's so many more complex weather patterns. Mm-hmm. And also here, like industrialized countries, their economies are based on other things. Mm-hmm. For example, like the United States, this the whole intellectual economy in terms yeah. of technology and you know the tech sector that doesn't depend like that. Not everyone is a subsistence farmer, right? But on the other hand, like for example, like my grandmother was telling my mom that you know like the cocoa and like the cacao did not grow much this year, yeah. and like the rains come in and out because that's what people depend their livelihood depends on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gets even much more complicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a shorter distance between yeah, weather and take home pay, essentially. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, well, we've already sampled this a little bit, your unique voice. (laughs) But one reason that I've been meaning to reach out to you, actually, ever since I started following you, which was a while ago, probably at least six months ago, because I do feel like you have a really unique voice among food bloggers. And it's this fact that you're an epidemiologist. And also the way that you present your information is very down to earth, very honest. I feel you connect very closely with your readers or your listeners, your oh, followers, your you. audience. And so <laughs> I thank you. Thank yes, you. Yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate that because it doesn't, I, I mean this in the best possible way. It doesn't feel overly polished. It feels like you say what's on your mind and it's always informative and interesting and uh, yeah, educational. And, and like I said, gracious also. And I just appreciate that combination. So that's what I get from you. I'm curious what you think you bring to the food blogging world. What do you think makes you unique? Yeah, so I was thinking about this a lot because Mm. I've been in the space for so long and only Mm -hmm. recently within the year. um, Has my page picked up like I see my page is definitely it's about like eight times the size it was this time last year. And all like social justice stuff aside, I just feel like there's not really anyone that does the content that I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I just reflecting on my experiences. 
my platform is slightly different. And when you mentioned that, you know, it's not polished, I just don't have time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and yes, and I think that is something that makes you very unique is that you're very open about the fact that this isn't like the dream. This isn't, you're not selling a how to become a food blogger. You're like, I am a food blogger because food is important to me and my heritage and I have something to say about it. Yeah. And honestly, like, yeah, this is the thing that helps me to stay calm. But, you know, mm. my program, my degree, my my academic journey, that's the most important thing to me. And I think mm. that this is this blogging has been an opportunity to, you know, exercise other parts of my brain, mm -hmm. um, like in creativity. Yeah. So for me, I think that I definitely bring a unique perspective to this because even though I live in Canada, I feel like I'm very much in tune with my Ghanaian experience. Mm -hmm. And I know that my, I know my audience is not Ghanaian. And so mm -hmm. I like being cognizant of that, that is what helps me to kind of plan out my content because there's no way I'm going to be blogging in Ghana and telling people that, oh, this is a typical Ghanaian dish when we <laughs> eat that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, right. <laughs> um, and so my goal was always it wasn't this was never really my goal until I realized that I had something to offer that other mm. food bloggers were not offering. When mm -hmm. I started my page, I literally most of the stuff that I posted was oatmeal because that's what I ate on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. And then I started to incorporate more Ghanaian foods and I was realizing that people are actually interested about this. Mm -hmm. So that helped me pivot my direction. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, I'm sitting on like a gold mine here in yeah. the sense that especially in Canada I don't obviously the US I feel like I I spent time in the US so I can kind of contrast and have mm. my family is American mm. is the the differences in how diversity is approached is just that because Canada is already a small country and there's not there was not really a lot of white people Mm. here and so the country's really been built on the backs of immigrants and there is that emphasis on keeping culture you go into different households from italians to eastern europeans to southeast asians to east asians africans like mm. most people speak a second language even the mm. white people as mm. i mentioned like the ones that have immigrated mm -hmm. so there is definitely the urge is less assimilation and more like an urge to dem like to to show as quote unquote authentic. I don't really like that word. Mm. And so that's why that was the goal of mine. It's like, well, I, I live in hmm. I live in Canada. We we say that we're a, a very diverse country. Mm. This is an opportunity to open people's minds to a completely different cuisine that they have not been that I feel like has been hiding under, right underneath their nose. Mm, it's yeah. Mm -hmm. I just felt like there was an opportunity for me to give people a really unique insight to a culture that has been kind of here the whole mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And especially within the vegan space, because I felt like there's so many vegans that could have benefit that can mm. benefit from this. But I also have a lot of non-vegan followers who were just mm -hmm. curious about you, West African food. Right. Yes. Actually, interesting. I, I'm remembering now. So first of all, it was a great answer. And I have at least three <laughs> follow-up questions. So it was a wonderful answer. So just, yeah, to follow up in a couple of places, because this is really interesting to me as an American, the comparison between diversity in America and Canada. So first of all, when you said there weren't many white people in Canada, and then you named a lot of groups of immigrants that included like Greeks and Italians. So when you say there weren't a lot of white people, do you mean that there were not a lot of Western European colonizers? Is that what you mean yeah. when you say not white? The colonists, the, uh -huh. I mean, Canada is, there's, most of our population is concentrated towards the southern part of the border. Right, yeah. Um, and <laughs> Where survival is a little easier. <laughs> yeah, so obviously there are people that came from England and the, the colonists, but really the population picked up significantly after World War II. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's it, even though they were small in number, they caused a lot of havoc. So I, that, that I want to make clear. <laughs> I see what you're saying. Um, but yeah. So beca and because of this, because the immigrant population has always been constant and heavy, you feel like there's less pressure among immigrant families to assimilate to a greater culture. 
people feel maybe more comfortable keeping their own cultural values, foods, systems, et cetera, in Canada? Yeah, I will definitely say that. There's always, obviously, mm-hmm. when you're moving to another country, there's always that pressure to like mm-hmm. to assimilate to the system. But mm-hmm. I will say that there was a whole multiculturalism act that was put in in the 70s or 80s. I'm not exactly sure the dates when that mm-hmm. law came into effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there was a lot of celebration of the differences. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I mean, we people speak English, but then you go home and then you speak a different language. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the pressure to assimilate was not as much compared Mm -hmm. to like my cousins, for example. So my dad's older brother moved to the US in 2000. Mm -hmm. And they moved to a small town in not really a small town in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. That part of Massachusetts is not too small. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the experiences was a lot more the need to assimilate. I think that mm-hmm. it would be a, it would have been a different experience if they had moved to somewhere like New York City, mm-hmm. um, yeah. where mm-hmm. you have very distinct immigrant um, yes. populations yeah. that really hold on to their cultures. A lot yes. of Ghanaians live there. A lot of West Africans are mm-hmm. there. But I don't think that's the case in Canada as much as people even move to the suburbs and try mm-hmm. and maintain more of their culture. Within their individual homes as a family. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 So we've talked a little bit about what it means to be a Ghanaian in uh, now you say um, Ghanaian, not Ghanaian. Yeah. Ghanaian. Okay. You had this really interesting um, blog post that I really appreciated because you talked about how frustrating it is for many Africans to like be lumped together. And we're going to talk a lot about here because you've lived in three very different African countries. And yet, rather than calling yourself the Canadian Ghanaian, you call yourself the Canadian African. So tell us a little bit about that, why you chose that handle, that moniker. Yeah, I feel like as someone who is very much a proponent of how people identify each of the 54 countries in Africa, like naming my um, my handle Canadian African mm. can be a bit of a misnomer, but I the intention was never to showcase just Ghanaian food. Mm-hmm. Um, on my blog, on my blog, I you know I talk about different West African foods, mm-hmm. and so for me, like I I make sure to let people know that I'm not an expert on all African countries, mm-hmm. but I felt like I would have been doing a disservice to just my experience and what I'm right. going to be sharing to my audience by pigeonholing myself as Ghanaian. Yeah. Also, because, you know, the West Africa, the African community, like the people from different African countries, they are incredibly protective about what they deem as their own authentic foods. Mm-hmm. So for example, like if I, God forbid, I say I'm a Ghanaian and I'm making jollof Nigerian style, <laughs> yes. I know that there are going to be a lot of Nigerians who are going to be in my comments saying, why is there a Ghanaian making mm-hmm. Nigerian jollof and then probably making a ton of mistakes? Mm-hmm. And so when I put the African there, it also allows me the opportunity to learn and and step into different African spaces, obviously Mm -hmm. as a visitor, not as an expert. And Mm -hmm. I always make this known in any of my posts that have to do with Mm -hmm. foods that are not Ghanaian. Like I'm just here to learn. I'm, and this is where I got my information. And the African is just so that when people see the Canadian African, they know that they kind of know what they're getting, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, That makes sense. And you have, you have lived Travel's the wrong word because it's not like you went on vacation. You've <laughs> lived, right? You've lived in three different African countries. So do you mind just, I kind of want to walk through each of mm-hmm. them and especially the food influences on your palate from each. But before we do that, give me like a timeline of your of your life story so far, the places you've been. Yeah, so people mm. ask that a lot. Um, mm. So yeah, I was born in a small mining town in mm. Ghana. I think it's really interesting because I am vegan, but my dad is a mining engineer. Mm. And so he works with a gold company. Very, very different. It's like we're on complete opposite spectrums of when, we, when it comes to dealing with the earth. Mm. Um, and it's something that I'm conscious about. And it's something that like, 
I wish it was a different story, but for my parents to ha- be in the place that they are really in, it's just honestly a blessing. It's an understatement. But yeah, so I was born in a small mining town in the middle of Ghana, um, in the Ashanti region, where mm-hmm. my tribe is from. So both my parents are from the same Ashanti tribe. Okay. Um, I moved to the capital Accra. I lived there till I was 10. Mm-hmm. And then my dad got a job in Tanzania. He'd been working in Tanzania for most of my life at that wow. point, but he would go, you know, working in the mines, they would give you six weeks in mine three weeks at home. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of how he'd moved around. Um, But then in Tanzania in 2006, he was given the opportunity to also have his family over and they were going to take care of our education. So my parents scooped us against my will. Uh. (laughs) I know that I know that that was a question Mm. in one of the questions that you asked, but I was very much content with the life that I was living Mm -hmm. in Ghana. Mm -hmm. I think that I had a conversation with my uncle about this maybe a couple of days ago when I was visiting my parents and just talking about, you know, a lot of Africans from different African countries move out of Africa for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, it's either they're fleeing conflict or they want to provide their children or them with a better life. And I think that my family was blessed enough to have an opportunity to just to live like a regular middle class lifestyle in Ghana. And so I didn't feel the need to leave. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you like, were 10. This was your was whole 10, life. You had exactly. friends, you were happy in school. Yeah. I was excited to move on to My the, kids, like middle school yeah, and <laughs> barely agreed to move 20 minutes down the road when my gosh, <laughs> my oldest was about 10. And I mean, it was like his world was ending, you know? Yeah, but I will not. The four years that we spent in Tanzania after was probably one of the best experiences Mm. that could have happened to my family. Um, Not only were we thrust into a new culture, but I think that it was good that we started out in Tanzania because Mm. even though there are differences in culture, in the end, they are, you know, dark-skinned Africans. Mm. Um, It was easy for us to access some of the stuff that we needed without having to find any specialty stores. And there really weren't any West African specialty stores, but we had access to plantains and beans. Mm. I wasn't vegan then. And so they had access to a lot of fresh seafood Mm -hmm. and fish from Lake Victoria. So that Mm -hmm. was not not a concern. But Mm -hmm. a big shock is that I think that in Ghana, our culture is, it's a very mono, it's not monolithic in a sense that, you know, we have 44 different tribes, but mm-hmm. everyone there is black and your first identity is not mm-hmm. the color of your skin, but your mm-hmm. tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, moving to Tanzania, there are a lot of people from of Indian descent or Pakistani yeah. descent that have lived in Eastern Africa for centuries. This was even before colonialism, just based on how trade happened, especially when you talk about Zanzibar, that area, there's a lot of Yemeni, Omani, there's so much cross-culture experiences. So that was our first exposure to a like a a multi-racial environment, mm-hmm. but it was it was still kind of controlled because these people have been so connected for so long. And being there, we were exposed to so many different cuisines from the eastern part of the world. So I remember my family and I, every single Sunday, we would go to a restaurant. So we would mm-hmm. always go to an Indian restaurant. We'll always get, like, they have a lot of Chinese-Indian fusion restaurants. Mm-hmm. We'll get different types of Indian food mm-hmm. and we'll just eat. And that was kind of my first experience in real good Indian food. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, we were exposed to that, obviously, the Tanzanian cuisine, but Tanzanian food is heavily influenced by Indian food. Mm. Um, And that was, yeah. And then I went to an international school. So that was where I was first exposed to people from other parts of Africa Mm. and also like South Africa, white South Africans. I didn't know that was a thing until... I went to Tanzania and yeah, there's a, because again, my dad was within the mining community. There are a lot of South Africans that are in that industry. Um, And so, yeah, that was, that was Tanzania best Mm. four years of my life, even though Mm. I was a kid. Um, (laughs) And then um, after that note to kids listening, change can be good. (laughs) (laughs) It really can. And my parents, Honestly, they sacrificed so much for us mm. during that time, especially my mom. Um, she raised mm. my sister and I kind of alone. Um, mm. Obviously, my dad would come in and out, but like just kind of how 
his work was. But yeah. And then after that, my dad got transferred to South Africa. I didn't really spend a lot of formidable time like in South Africa, because at that time I got a scholarship to study at a boarding school in Connecticut. So I was going back and forth. And so my, my mom and my sister and I moved to the U S so I was in school there. My dad was in South Africa. Mm. We went back and forth. I was already familiar with South Africa because I went to school with a lot of South Africans and Mm -hmm. one of my closest friends was South African. So Mm -hmm. yeah, and we didn't really spend much time there. My mom didn't, there was not a lot of access to things that we were familiar with. Like they don't Mm -hmm. grow plantains south of Malawi. Oh, really? It's more yeah. of a, oh, okay. It's oh, a very, <laughs> it's a, like an equatorial. Um, it's food. very much an equatorial thing. Interesting. Um, once yeah. you go south, it's very much meat heavy. Some things that my parents did pick up was ugali. When you start to go south, it becomes pop. The swallows on that in Eastern Africa are very much either. You get millets, which is kind of mm, Kenya, mm-hmm. Uganda, or you just get corn based, which as you go down Ugali, it becomes pop in South Africa. So those were the things that we incorporated into our diet, but not really much. Those are all grains, Ugali, pop, millets. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes, yes. It's very different. I think that when you talk about swallows, West Africa has that, like they're the number one leader when it comes to a variety of different swallows. And for people who are listening, a swallow is basically a starchy ball um, that we dip into stews and soups. But yeah, the South African experience was rather short and brief. Mm. And then my dad got not And not immersive because you were in Connecticut. That was exactly where you were immersed more so really. Yeah, Mm. it was, I think that it would have been different if I had gone to school there. It was quite the change. The school year is very different because they're Southern Hemisphere. So their school year starts in February. Yeah, Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So I was in Connecticut. That was a whole different experience too, in a basically an upper class bubble. I was given a scholarship and I was grateful for that opportunity. Mm -hmm. But then my parents moved to Canada and then I joined them here. (laughs) And that's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I have lots of follow-up questions and I am just typing the last one. Okay. So (laughs) that's a just a fascinating life story. And I'm going to start actually not with a follow-up question, but with something that I was going to ask later. And I Mm -hmm. just, I feel like the urge to ask it now before we dig into each of these places. Do you feel like you have a home? And what does the definition of, yeah, what does, what does the concept of home mean to you? And is food related to it? Yeah. That's Uh, a lot of, that's a lot of moving. Yeah, no, that that is definitely a lot of moving and it's mm. not as is not as much as my sister had to endure. So mm. I'm grateful that at least I had some stability. Mm. Um for me in terms of home, this is always a complicated question for mm-hmm. a lot of third culture yes, kids. Um it's so interesting because my parents asked me it's always weird the whole where is your home and like Mm. the question of when someone randomly comes up to you and is like where are you from and they start (laughs) asking you where you really from I was having a conversation with my parents because in Ghana when you talk about you know where a child is from Mm. we're very matrilineal so the first thought is my mom's village that's where Mm -hmm. it's like home but I I barely visited I've been there twice And I've always considered Ghana home, but I've also come to terms with the fact that Ghana will never be home because mm-hmm. I have become such a different person. So mm-hmm. for me, it's it, Canada has become home mm-hmm. in a sense that it, it still allows me to immerse myself within the Canadian, I'm not the Canadian, the Ghanaian life and experience mm-hmm. and have access to a Ghanaian community. Mm-hmm. My parents go to a Ghanaian church. Mm-hmm. We, we, every summer, I mean, not the summer because of yeah, Corona. COVID. But yeah. every summer there is, I, I, I follow them to all the events. I go to the park and the picnic with them. We eat Ghanaian food at home. Mm-hmm. So that Ghana part, I don't have to be in Ghana to be fully immersed in my Ghanaian yeah. experience. Mm-hmm. At home, I speak the local language with my parents. So 
home is you mean the tribal language that the, yeah sorry the sorry that you're both in. no 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 when i mean local yeah the the, the tribal language which is mm -hmm. akan um okay. and so yeah that's that's what i that's how i communicate with my parents obviously with a mix of english um mm -hmm. but yeah so where home is wherever they are yeah yeah yeah. So going way back to the beginning and talking, uh, you said that you were born in Ghana and your dad was a gold miner. He worked mm -hmm. in the mining community. They mined gold. And it took me a minute to catch on to what you were saying, because you said that as a vegan, it was, you know, of course, so interesting that your dad was a miner. Flesh that out for me a little bit more, because you mentioned that your veganism is actually closely related to your view of the earth, which I don't think is the way a lot of us initially define veganism. It's the way that you relate to animals. So tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that. Yeah. And that's something that I, you know, people say they go vegan for health reasons mm. or sustainability or mm. um, the animal for animal welfare. And before I, I personally think that like to truly follow a vegan lifestyle, you have to also consider all sentient beings mm -hmm. and a ve like you can relate to veganism through sustainability. And that's kind of how I entered into it in terms of that relationship. And with my, like my dad's job, it's always mm -hmm. a point of contention, but you know, the job came before I became vegan. Of course. Um, for me personally, like, yes, it's, it's very much connected to the earth. And I'm not going to sit here and lie and say that, you know, you know, gold mining has not had, Mining in general has not had detrimental impacts on ecosystems mm -hmm. and biodiversity. Ghana was called the Gold Coast for a reason. And mm -hmm. artisanal mining has always been a thing there mm -hmm. um, that has also been done in protecting, like done while protecting, you know, the natural resources because mm -hmm. everyone really depended on nature. Mm -hmm. um, it is something that I contend with. It's not something that I dwell too much on because unfortunately it is the reality of sure. our lives. And I feel like this is why I also think that being vegan for me, I also center it on the fact that because I have the privileges that I have, that this is the best way for me to, you know, kind of contribute to better good. Because I have access to food, I have access to a shelter, mm -hmm. I use a lot of technology to be mm -hmm. able to run my business. Technology also means electricity. I, you know, my, my impact on this earth is a lot larger than say, like, you know, someone in my grandmother who lives in Ghana and lives off the earth and doesn't have right. a phone. Well, right. actually she has multiple, but she yeah. doesn't use <laughs> a computer and she's not storing emails and drawing large <laughs> amounts of electricity. So yeah, that is kind of where I'm like, well, look, this is the realities of my impacts on this planet. What mm -hmm. is there that I can do to kind of mm -hmm. offset that? I see. Um, I see. Yeah, that's just that's just so it's a good thing for me to think about and to consider when people talk about ethics. Again, usually I relate that to the ethics of how animals are treated and you're mm -hmm. broadening the ethical discussion to how the earth is treated. Yeah. 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 And yeah. how it's maintained for other humans. Exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So tell me a little bit more about Ghana up until you were the time up until you were 10 and especially about like who cooked for you there? <laughs> what did you like to eat? How much did you learn to cook while you were there? Yeah. So I think it's going to be hard for me to differentiate my experience mm -hmm. in Ghana before 10 and mm -hmm. all the multiple times that I did go back to Ghana. Okay. Mm. So in my house, obviously I mentioned that my dad was living in Tanzania at that time. So in our house, it was my mom and my sister and I, we also had a nanny that lived with us um, mm -hmm. in Ghana. It's actually quite common to have people yeah. like mm -hmm. at the homes. It's yeah. families actually do that because when they bring them to like homes like ours, the homeowners or the head of the households usually will enroll them into some kind of whether it's finishing school. So our nanny, she was helped to basically become a, a tailor, a seamstress, making ah. clothes is such a big thing in Ghana. So, yes. so 
So at home, the cooking, you we didn't just cook for us. The rice cooker was cooking rice nonstop. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so we we had a lot of cooking. My parents were building another house, so they would feed the laborers. Like, oh, is that lunch. common? It's kind of common, especially because of how close the buildings were oh, okay. um, to provide some kind of food for them. Um, and there was always people in and out of our house. It was not yeah. just my mom, my sister and I. Um, And so, yeah. So during the day, the rice cooker was on full blast. And then at nighttime, (laughs) we would make fufu. So fufu is very much like a dinner type meal. And it's Mm. a, it's a plantain and cassava based swallow that we eat with some kind of tomato based soup. Mm. Um, Obviously, I wasn't vegan then. So there's a lot of animal protein that is used to make the base of the soup. Mm -hmm. Um, That was not common for my parents growing up. But now that they had more money to be able to afford animal-based products that's Mm. how they went about it yeah so really and I didn't really cook I was so young Mm -hmm. but I was kind of observing what was going on in Ghana like during my parents time the houses were built in a way that there's an open courtyard in the middle and if someone doesn't have a pestle to pound the fufu they would just go to a neighbor's house Mm -hmm. and collect that people ate families ate together mm-hmm. um and so yeah that was it was kind of replicated in our house not a hundred percent and my cooking experience really didn't start until I left Tanzania mm-hmm. because that was when I was old enough to yes. start cooking but yeah. I really really did not learn how to cook Ghanaian food until I was in Canada because I had the time right. to, to spend with my mom who was now doing the soul cooking in the household right. Right. But maybe that's when you kind of began to fall in love with food a little bit because you had this communal experience like food. Food meant more than food to you when you were in Ghana. Exactly. My mom, (laughs) my mom is very particular about what she eats. She's very open to eating different foods, Mm -hmm. but she in, in her house, it's always some kind of Ashanti dish. That mm. she's going to be cooking, yeah. Mm. And Ashanti is Ashanti was not your tribe. It's the it tribe. Was. It's the it tribe. is okay. It's the tribe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. so, how much does Ghanaian food differ from itself? You said there's something like fifty, yeah, fifty-five tribes. How much do these the foods differ? Um, yeah. So there's quite a lot of tribes in such a small geographical location. Mm. In terms of differences, there's a lot of blending. There are differences because of the geography. The regional differences are based on climate. So in where my parents are from is like thick forests. So a lot of the foods that they eat is very much tubers, plantain, greens, roots, vegetables that grow in the forest. Mm -hmm. Things like avocado and things like that are, they grow wild. So you can just pluck them off the tree. What a luxury. (laughs) What a luxury, really. Mm -hmm. And like solid Akan food is ampesie, which is like the West African yam, plantain, and some kind of green sauce Mm -hmm. um, made with the cocoa yam leaves or fufu, which I previously described. When you go towards the south, towards the coast, you start to see some more corn, swallows, lots more palm oil, coconut mm-hmm. oil. Uh, yeah, like the the there's a lot of blending and mixing between like the forested areas and mm-hmm. the coastal parts. But the big difference is when you go up north. Ah. Um, up north is like it's almost Sahel savanna. So you know you huh. have the Sahara, then you have the Sahel, and then right underneath it is like um, I don't know plains. the Sahel. I don't know the Sahel, but that that's a new term to me. Yeah, yeah. So underneath the Sahara, so countries like the north of Nigeria, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali, uh-huh. um, for example, those that hit the border of uh-huh. the Sahara, there's yeah. that in-between region called the Sahel. And so the bottom of that touches northern Ghana. And so there is okay. actually where you get a lot more grain. So millet, mm. rice, sorghum, guinea corn, they are touted to have the best food in Ghana. They basically are holding the fork down for Ghanaian food. Um, 
<laughs> and you can you can say that freely. <laughs> oh yes, it. This is not. This is not something that we debate. It's not disputed. <laughs> it's not disputed because they also have such a big diversity of food. Even though my tribe is Ashanti, we are within a larger ethnic group called yeah. Akan, and that okay. also includes a lot of people in the south of Ghana. So the western coastal part of Ghana, covering all the forested areas, we speak the same language but different tonation. So it's like okay, it's like Spain, Spanish, and Mexico Spanish. Got it. Yeah. So that is that is kind of the experience. That's super interesting to me. But yeah, the North is completely different. Also, they're mainly Muslim. So that also changes the the, the, the Eden pattern. So, 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 and tell me a little bit. So it's South of the Sahara, but North of the Savannah. So what, what do, what kind of climate and agriculture, like, what do you get there? Because obviously it's ideal for agriculture. What do you, what do you get? Yeah, so sorry. Um, I, I feel like I should have explained it better. So you have the Sahara, which is the northern part of Africa, the African continent. Right. And below that, the transition zone is called the Sahel. Yeah. So it is not desert. It's not scorching hot desert, but it's very dry and arid. And huh. then and things grow you- well in dry, arid. So yes, it, there's also different levels to it. Obviously, the yeah. parts that's closer to the Sahara is hotter. Right. The parts that are closer to the rainforest areas are obviously wet. Okay. Um, so that is where the wet part, that's where that touches the northern part of Ghana. Ah, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I see. So it's south of the Sahara, but north of the rainforest. And you just kind of have this sweet spot of just the right amount of sun and rain. Exactly. Exactly. Ah, um, exactly. I yeah. did not ever know that before. Okay. That's super interesting. Yeah. Thank you oh, for explaining course. that to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm Googling right now. <laughs> this is great to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh. I, I will be happy to send the link to you. Okay, so let's let's move on to Tanzania. And I know we're coming up against our hour. Do you mind if I ask just a couple more questions? Oh, go can... ahead. I literally have nothing else to oh, do. Okay. So <laughs> I, I can sit here and talk. I know it's going to be hard to edit it all out. Um, <laughs> I, I love everything I'm learning. I really do. <laughs> so, um, so Tanzania, how exactly did all of the Asian... Southern Asian and East Asian influences make it to Tanzania. What's the history there? Okay. I feel like my brain is just a big ball of information. (laughs) (laughs) And I, these are random times when I actually get to use them. So, okay. So basically Eastern Africa, where it sits in the Indian Ocean, there was Mm. a lot of movement between the Arab world and Eastern Africa. So starting, you know, like how North Africa, they are part of the Arabic Mm -hmm. union of countries. Mm -hmm. Um, They all have very unique experiences. But Tanzania, there's a lot of trade, especially in spices. Hmm. Um, If you look at the Tanzanian... Because they're spice rich. Yes. Ah, And obviously it is, it it is a Bantu. Bantu is is like the ethnical, the ethnic Africans or the black African. West Africans are not technically Bantu because Bantu is also a language group. Um, Yeah. Okay. 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 (laughs) We're, we're upper, we're vault, we're like Volta and it's, it's a, sorry. I, I like to, I find myself always in a wormhole of linguistic trees, Um, but it's, yeah. So that part of East Africa. So one of the ways to explain that especially is Zanzibar. So hmm. Zanzibar is an island off the coast of Tanzania. With yeah. Tanzania, the mainland is Tanganyika. The islands are Zanzibar. You put Tan and Zan together, you get Tanzania. Oh, um, ha, I didn't yeah. know that. Okay. I'm not Tanzanian. I've only lived there for four years. So all the information I'm providing is from my experience. If yeah. if one random listener is Tanzanian and saying <laughs> that I am saying something wrong, please forgive me. I'm trying my best. Yeah. Um, there's just that part, regardless of what history you're learning, mm-hmm. there's always been movement in that area mm-hmm. from the Arabian Peninsula, mm-hmm. also distances between the Eastern African coast, you have your Madagascars, and then the Indian subcontinent, it is not as wide as say, yeah. like the Pacific Ocean, yeah, <laughs> or yes. even the Atlantic. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And they're actually closer than West Africa is to East Africa. 
Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Africa is a huge it, it, maps. Yeah. Don't do it justice because you're trying to you're trying to take a, a globe, which is right a, and a, round, and a, so round, sphere. Yeah, a sphere. yeah, a sphere, and you're trying to impose it on a square. So dimensions are always going to be off. Yeah. So the draw was the spices. So there, it just, it, I mean, it's just plain and simple. It became a trade route. So considering the fact that this was a more diverse like you said you had black africans and then you had lighter like lighter skinned africans and also south asians would you say it that way or no um i i don't think there was as much racial mixing between okay. indian and i mean i feel like there is, there was i did not see it as that um i feel it, like if yeah. you go to the the islands like zanzibar which they have a completely different and you well not different but that there is a it's more more concentrated um mm. so it was definitely black africans people of indian or pakistani descent okay. um that were really that was really the majority ethnic groups okay um, but they all spoke swahili and swahili is also a mix of arabic and bantu languages right. um so right. yeah that's that's right. basically the mixture there okay so within that was there a general hierarchy oh yeah yeah. Oh, okay. Kit, yeah. Do, you, do you mind telling us a little bit oh, about of that? Course. And um, how did that affect your personal experience? I don't think it affected my personal experiences okay. just because my family was living there as ex expatriates. Mm. And when you live somewhere as an expat, it's your lifestyle is very different. Obviously, the company bringing you there, they have to kind of take care of everything. But just mm -hmm. seeing how the experiences are a lot of the hotels and the big businesses were owned by people of Indian or sub Indian continents like mm -hmm. that ancestry. And I feel like maybe their colonialism probably had something to do with it, especially mm -hmm. even when you talk a lot about Kenya, mm -hmm. because Kenya was almost slightly going to be something like a South Africa, but the the Kenyan the indigenous Kenyans did not want that to be, um, mm. but you could definitely there is definitely a high hierarchy um, in that and it, it I feel and like the, the hierarchy was you at, have your the Indians or the mm -hmm. people of yeah sub Indian constant like Arabic that lighter mm -hmm. Eastern mm -hmm. Asian ancestry and then you bef and then below were the Black Africans yeah okay. Let's just take a really quick diversion before we go to Connecticut and then Canada and talk about this recipe that you gave us because it's inspired by Tanzania and the yeah. different flavors you experienced there. So it's a lentil quinoa palau. Am I saying palau correctly? Yeah, 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 palau. Okay. So tell us about this. When did you eat palaus? What did you love about them? And then how did you develop this recipe? Yeah, so when I went to like... At school, our little canteen lunch area, there was you would you can get an option of palau with mishkaki, which is like a their barbecue meat, and it mm. comes with a side of chapati. Um, mm. So palau is something that people eat a lot in East Africa. When we went to res restaurants, we would get Indian palaus, but also there are some Tanzanian based palaus that basically married the 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 flavors of you know the spices that people use a lot there so it was something that was kind of common mm -hmm. not kind of it was common <laughs> so <laughs> even in our I, I went to an international school in our lunch place they were giving us palau and, and, <laughs> and chapati um, yeah if you're having it for school lunch it's <laughs> ubiquitous so but what is a palau can you define it it's hard to describe it because okay. East Africa, Tanzania, they will describe it slightly different as someone from India. Oh, um, or okay. yeah, because it, it's kind of, it's a it's a rice based dish that mm -hmm. is usually cooked with a lot of spices, mm -hmm. um, lot yeah, a lot of spices. In Tanzania, there is usually meat based, mm -hmm. um, potatoes, and then rice, mm -hmm. um, basmati rice, and it's cooked in a flavorful. Um, mm spicy broth mm. yeah. um and so it's kind of it's so like delicious. a one, one pot dish yeah yeah so mm -hmm. i i obviously wanted to take that inspiration and i used quinoa because honestly i didn't have access to rice at that point i do not mm. know why and i was trying to switch up my grains and lentils was something that i had seen in and out of some of the palaos that i tried very mm. rarely because most of them are meat-based but the vegetarian mm -hmm. ones and so that's where it 
really begun mm -hmm. i tried to keep things like you know the cardamom in there mm -hmm. um, yeah <laughs> a little, yeah it. yeah so mm -hmm. um that, those are all spices like cloves for example i i i have it's been a while since i looked at that recipe but you know a lot of those spices were grown in zanzibar they had there was a whole slave like plantations there mm -hmm that grew some of those spices. So it's very much ingrained in a lot of Tanzanian dishes. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's basically where the inspiration came from. Okay. And my only question about making it, I, <laughs> tell me a little bit about the importance of using brown lentils because I, um, I've used black lentils and I've used green lentils. I've never used brown lentils. So what makes that, what is the difference between brown and other lentils and why why did you choose those for the dish? Nothing particularly. Okay. Um, I just, yeah. That that's was, what you had in the house. That's what I had in the house. <laughs> um, okay. I wish I could provide a more profound response. No, that's okay. Because what that does is it gives us the freedom to try something a little different also, which I exactly. think I'm I, like, go ahead. I wouldn't suggest using the red ones because those red ones, they've already been hauled. Oh. Um, so the red, the red lentils that you find, they're technically grown either like as brown lentils and then the, the, the husk or the outside is removed. That's why it cooks faster and it cooks oh. softer. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. So the one last thing that I'd like to cover is kind of your experience. You talked about Tanzania being a good shoulder experience, mm -hmm. like a first, it was like a semi cross-cultural mm -hmm. experience. And then when you moved to Connecticut, that was like a mega cross-cultural experience in every way. Talk to me about all of that and kind of whatever way you'd like to share it. Yeah, Um so when I moved to Connecticut, I, I wouldn't say it was a huge culture shock just because I went mm. to international school. Yes. Um, and I guess the type of person I am, like I try and get along with everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that it was also a very different experience because I was in a bubble. Mm. One, I was in a, um, people will say a predominantly white institution. I was, I went to a school that like, the rich of the rich went to. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I was so grateful for that experience mm -hmm. because I was there on a scholarship. Um, I didn't have to really pay much to be there to be able to have yeah. access to such a world-class education. Yeah. And it was um, almost like the assumption maybe was that because you were there, you belonged. And so other yeah. things may have been mitigated, like other, other issues, things that might've been an issue out, let's just call it the real world, were not an issue. Exactly. Yeah. And there was like very much a simulation versus like displaying differences. It was very much a simulation. Honestly, that I did not reflect much about that experience until I left, until mm -hmm. I graduated and I came mm -hmm. to Canada. It was not um, traumatic for you in any way. Oh, it was. Um, oh. <laughs> I didn't. I did not realize how traumatic that experience was until mm. I was outside of that bubble. Mm. And after like, I was so young, I was so young. So it was kind of easy for me to, to assimilate and try and mold myself until when I came to Canada and starting to really think about me as a person mm -hmm. and starting to see the patterns of how being there affected me. Yeah, it affected me so much that it impacted my relationship with food. And that's kind of where the whole vegan journey mm -hmm. began. I would remember that I would come back, my parents, I would see my parents like in between the breaks at boarding school and my tolerance for spicy food had like gone down the drain. Mm. Um, those were little things that I rec realized with food. I would savor every little container of jollof rice that my mom would give me. I didn't get that often, but it was nice to have. Mm. And yeah, but very much I was there. It was, I guess it was survival mode mm -hmm. in the end. And I really didn't reflect on that experience until I came out of the U.S. and realized, you know, how much it was very much an assimilation and less of like a, you know, talk about your diversity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like you decided to become vegan as a way to assimilate in the sense that you wanted to assimilate your body. You wanted your body to look more like the body bodies of the people you were surrounded by. 
actually that that's not how it all went oh i misunderstood that it's okay okay. no it's fine obviously there was where i started to learn a lot more about sustainability so i joined the sustainable club we were called the sea proctors um and i yeah that's kind of where i started to learn a little bit more about you know sustainability beyond just turning my lights off and recycling paper and more about how my food impacts that so I I tried being vegetarian for a month. I failed miserably because (laughs) I I really wasn't thinking about what to eat. Um, But then that whole experience, obviously, that it it had significant impacts on my body image. Mm. Um, And then when I came to Canada, the first year, I really struggled with my eating. I lost a lot of weight quickly I, I was also very stressed mm-hmm. um the canadian university experience is not fun <laughs> oh, okay. mm-hmm. and that was at the end i think veganism just found me at the right time okay. um, because it was an opportunity for me to kind of simplify my eating and then go and then also have a bigger impact on the planet i was not thinking about Ghanaian food when i was making that decision I was just thinking about, I am trying to heal myself. I'm trying to be better for the planet. This seems like a really good idea. Thought I would just do it for a month, a week, and I kind of just stuck with it. Okay. Okay. That does make sense. So it was, it happened, you became concerned about more about the planet and sustainability while you were at the boarding school. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't until you went to Canada that you went fully vegan. Yes. And then at that time, that's when you wrote this post about the weight gain on a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. And you kind of, it kind of like was gut check time. Like, do you really want to do this for the reasons that you thought you wanted to do it? Is that kind of more what happened? I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that my vegan journey has been smooth sailing. I think that that was why I felt like at that time I would, I went vegan at the peak of freely the banana girl. Mm, um, I don't know I who was, that is. Oh, oh my goodness. Freely <laughs> the banana girl. She was the epitome of veganism in 2016, 2015. She was oh. drinking 15, 15 banana smoothies and like, eating all of these fruits and just like, Oh, I'm looking at her. Okay. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to look like that? Right. Oh my God. Veganism has changed so much since that time. Mm. And not, I think that because it was still relatively new, people were trying to sell this lifestyle more than what the realities of it is Mm. now. And Mm -hmm. I, I w- obviously I was still struggling with my 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 body image. I made that switch so quickly. And the one mm-hmm. thing I always tell people if they're interested about mm-hmm. being vegan is to do it slowly. I think it was a huge mm-hmm. shock on my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and men- my mentality was so still on the physical features. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I was like, well, I'm also doing it for the planet. So that was always kind of at the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. But my it's funny how I've kept some of these blog posts up because mm-hmm. I guess I put them there to remind me of how much I've grown. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was, it was almost like it was a both and thing. Yeah. And then, and then, yeah, like I said, it was gut check and you were like, okay, yes, I might not be turning into freely the banana girl, but <laughs> <laughs> that's not actually why I did this. It's kind of, um, I think it's not unlike actually a religious conversion where people come up against like maybe something that challenges their faith or isn't quite as easy as they thought it was going to be. And they say, okay, well, why did I really do this in the first place? You know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, that's really what it was for you. And it's kind of like you, uh, you passed the test (laughs) as they would say in religious circles, right? You kind of was like, no, this is, I'm doing this not for myself or my body. Well, you're doing it for the health of your body, but not for yourself. But for for things, reasons outside of myself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I personally follow a Christian faith. So Mm -hmm. I think that I can, I definitely see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My last question is, you know, you talked about how like, you have so much to offer people that are not Ghanaian. And I'm wondering if you feel that as a vegan, you, you, you have something to offer specifically to Ghanaians or Africans as the Canadian African. Yeah, yeah. More and more Ghanaians are finding my page mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because it realizing that out of all of the 
Africans in the vegan space, I have the one of the larger platforms. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, there are a lot, there are so many Instagram pages that showcase at different types of foods. Mm-hmm. So there's huge Nigerian food bloggers, huge mm-hmm. Ghanaian food bloggers, but I was really the only person that really talked about veganism. And I think that what I offer to Ghanaians is to realize how much our food has changed and it's taking us away from what our, what our food really was. Mm. Um, as I mentioned, my grandparents, so I mentioned, I say this a lot, even though my mom was skeptical and she thought that I was going, I was joining a cult. She also <laughs> did not find this too surprising because her, her mother, my grandmother and her grandmother didn't really eat meat. And this whole conversation about the nutritional transition in a lot of lower income countries where, you know, in higher income countries like Canada or the United States, the big health problems are of lifestyle choices. So these are chronic diseases such as cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, and now the concern. And you see that, folks. Um, The funny thing is that in Ghana, the lower income people are dealing with infectious diseases middle class and upper upper income are now starting to deal with chronic diseases so hypertension and diabetes so you have both both health outcomes that are going to start crippling the the very fragile health system in ghana my mom and her parent like her her family they ate like they ate meat that they found in the forest, but it was a very little amounts. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't really eat much chicken or goat or whatever the animals that people eat now. Mm-hmm. And so my my goal to showcase plant-based foods rooted in Ghanaian food. So like I don't, mm-hmm. I tr- it's, it's interesting because I know my audience is very Canadian and a lot of mm-hmm. people want substitutions, but I make it a point to also make sure that I stick true to the spices and the ingredients mm-hmm. as much as possible. And also remind people that look like this is how our grandparents were eating. Yeah. My grandmother, we always joke about this, that she is going to outlast the queen. She's going to be the only person that's going to outlast the queen. Um, she's in her 90s, strong, healthy, walking around. And for people, like for a lot of Africans, the concern for dying young is usually infectious diseases. But once you get past, you know, your childhood or where those become, those are major health threats, there is so many opportunities for people to live a very long and fruitful life yeah, yeah. living off the, the the earth. But now our lifestyles mm-hmm. have changed completely, very meat heavy. People are yeah. driving everywhere. There's not a lot of physical activity yeah, as there used it's true. to be. And the only reason people are living as long as they are is because of uh, an almost oppressive dependence. No, not the only reason. A large part of the reason that the average lifespan in the U.S. is later than it used to be is not because we're healthier, but because we have an almost, yeah, yeah, medical advancements that are almost like make the last years of life very difficult yeah, painful. Exactly. Um, It's not because, like you said, it's not because the quality of life or because we're actually healthier. We, We don't. If we make it out of childhood, like you said, that obviously that's that's a massive, massive improvement. But it is such a good point. It's such a good point that you're making. It's like we have become too rich for our own goods because we can't curb our appetites ourselves. And so now that we can afford to eat ourselves sick, we actually are. That's that's very much like that's very, very true. I don't say this to belittle the experiences of a lot of people that don't have enough to eat. Malnutrition mm. is a big concern in mm. in West Africa. But the intention is that, you know, my parent, my grandmother, my mom. Mm-hmm. She grew up in a village <laughs> mm-hmm. like the, we don't a lot of the villages, they don't have mud hats, as people think. Mm-hmm. It's usually like just smaller buildings that are made from concrete, but they you don't consider them middle class. They are lower income. Mm-hmm. They went to the public school, but, you know, they lift off the land. Mm-hmm. They they did not they didn't catch if they did not catch infectious diseases and they had something to eat every single day and kept, you know, like ate what they needed and was very much rooted on foods from the earth. Mm-hmm. The longevity, so many people can tell you about grandparents that have lived 80 something plus years and their children are dying before them from 
diabetes, mm-hmm. hypertension, and it's something that we even see we're seeing in my family too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that is why I that is what I try and offer to the Africans who want to, who are following my page. Yeah. Well, I've taken up way too much of your time. Oh, no, I can sit here and keep talking about this. I, I have taken a lot of your time. No, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I could keep going too. But yes, for both of our sakes, we'll, we'll let this go. I really do appreciate you coming on, though. I, I mean, like I said, it's like I've learned linguistics. I've learned history. I've learned about food and cooking. And most of all, I've enjoyed learning a little bit about you. And your life and your story, because again, just to go back to what I said at the beginning, I really think you have a gift for genuinely connecting with people, for kind of like speaking unabashedly, but in a way that again, doesn't repel people and makes us feel like, oh, let me let me think about that more. I want to get to know you more. So I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate your time. And, of course. Um, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, my pleasure. And I'll follow up with you. Okay. Of course. Of course. All right. Of course. Okay. <laughs> Take care of you. Have you a great know. afternoon. Bye, Becky. Bye-bye. Thanks again so much to Afia and most especially to all of you, the listeners that make this podcast work and worth it and keep on growing. As always, I so appreciate a share with your friends and family or over on social media. And I appreciate your five-star rating and review that makes the podcast more visible and searchable for others. If you don't know how to do any of those things, just go to the show notes. There's lots of links, including a really easy way to leave a review you and a rating for the podcast. Thank you so much for your support. As always, Afia's lentil quinoa pilau is on the website, thestoriedrecipe.com, as well as all the links for how you can connect with her. You can also find lots more recipes, all the prior episodes, food photography information, resources for creatives, a bit more about me and the podcast over there as well. So feel free to head over to thestoriedrecipe.com if you're looking for any of those things. Next week, we have a super fun and inspiring interview with Tony Scotto, who came to Baltimore at the age of 17 from Naples, Italy. He went from working in his uncle's restaurant to, in this really unlikely story, buying a restaurant with his sibling and his cousin, actually just out of a joke. And now they've expanded their family-owned business to seven locations. We talk about Italy, Baltimore, some of the differences and similarities in the cultures, the twists and turns of life, the challenges and blessings of working with family, and how to run a business that thrives through difficulties. It's a really fun and engaging conversation. Oh, we talk about clams as well and how to make clam spaghetti. I learned a lot about that. So yes, you will absolutely want to make sure that you hit that subscribe button right now so you don't miss Tony and the really full exciting lineup that I have for this fall and holiday season. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.